there we go. There's my secretary. Thank you. And um, the backstory for John, where we are right now, is um, we're in chapter 17. He is praying for his disciples. Chapters 13 all the way to 17 is almost all red letter stuff. Jesus comforting and teaching his um, apostles. He's about to be arrested within the hour and go to the cross in just a handful of hours after seven trials. So we are hearing him pray for his disciples, for himself, uh, praying to his father. And uh, so he's going to pray for unity and glory for his disciples. And that's them, the, the 11 that are there, but it's also you and me. Um, and then in chapter 18, we'll see the Garden of Gethsemane scene and look at some um, I think kind of unusual connections maybe in that chapter back to the Old Testament. But anyway, let's dive in chapter 17. Uh, we left off at verse 16. Um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11, just so you get the flavor that he's praying for his disciples. Those of you that are uh, awake, please say amen or wail, wave since I can't see you. Great. All right, let's dive in, shall we? Chapter 17 of John, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, he's talking about the 11, are still in the world, these 11 apostles, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. He and his father are one. He's asking for that same unity among all believers, and especially these 11 who are going to need it with all the uh, persecution they're going to encounter. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, the son of perdition, some translations have. That's Judas, of course, who was never a believer, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He never lost one of his disciples, and he never will. Verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the fullness, the full measure of my joy within them. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. And that's true even now, the world dislikes Christianity and Christians. The world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. The world in the Bible means that unsaved, sinful world. We're to be separate. That's what the word holy means. We'll talk about that later. Separate from the world, sinful world. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from evil or the evil one. And that can be apostasy. It can be Satan, demons, all the evil that's in the world that tempts us. Now let's pick it up in verse 16. It says they, he's talking about the 11 disciples and all believers, are not of the world, even as I am not of it, kind of a repetition of what he said earlier. So he prays to the Father that God would, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the words uh, hagios, uh, hagiadzo, I think it is in the Greek, is means, it means holy, make them holy, holy eyes almost. We use the word sanctification. It means a separation for God's purposes. We taken out of the world in terms of its influence, but we're still in the world in terms of interacting with other people in a meaningful way kind of thing. So hakiatso, yeah, uh, in, in Greek, separate them from godly service. And Jesus is the ultimate example. He was in the world, but never of it. He never sinned, tempted in all things as we were, yet he never, ever sinned. 
So he's praying that God would do that for them and for us. And of course he does as we yield to his spirit. Um, what else do I want to tell you about that? Notice also that he sends us into the world. The word mission in Latin really means to dispatch or send. So that could mean that you go on a mission around the world somewhere else to another country, or it could mean just your world, the people that you encounter every day, family and friends, neighbors, people you work or go to school with kind of thing. So verse, uh, the rest of verse 17, um, sanctify them by the truth. There's so much lying and, and untruth going on in the world, sanctifying them by the truth. And then he equates the truth with God's word. Now, that God's word can be his spoken word. He spoke and created the universe. There's three meanings here. God's word, what he speaks. Number two, God's word is we call the Bible God's word, the word of God. So we're sanctified. We're set apart. The more we read the Bible, it's a supernatural book. It has effects that we can't imagine. The more you read it, the more you see the godly way of life and God's will, and the less you are familiar with or like the worldly sinful stuff around you. The third way it can be taken is your word is truth, is in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says the word was with God and the word was God. John 1.14, we find out Jesus is the word. So in a sense, we're sanctified by Jesus. If he doesn't sanctify himself totally and die for the sins of the world, there's no sanctifying us because we can't set ourselves apart uh, without him doing that. Okay, verse 18 the purpose of sanctification. Here's the mission. As you sent me, Jesus says to the Father, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, the disciples at this time, they're with him in Jerusalem. They have no idea he's going to send them around the world to all parts of the world in all different directions. And as I said earlier, that's our mission to spread the word of the gospel. Uh, verse 19, for them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, he sanctifies them by his word, all the ways we just said. Some of what he speaks ends up in the word of God, the Bible. But the big way that Jesus is able to sanctify us is by dying on the cross without taking away the guilt for sin in our souls and spirits. There's no way we were ever going to be set apart. With that taken care of, the wall of separation between vertically between us and God is gone and we can have communion with God and be sanctified. It's an ongoing process. Glo I'm sorry, justification is something that happens when a believer believes. There's three parts to believing or salvation. Justification, the moment you and I believe we are justified. It's a one-time thing. Sanctification is the lifelong ongoing practice whereby God makes you less like the old you, less sinful and more holy. You're learning the word of God. You are doing more good deeds. You're doing less sin, if you will. Um, and then the third phase of, of salvation is glorification. That happens either when we pass away or ultimately when Jesus returns and we get new bodies. Um, that's for another Bible study. Let's move on. Verse 19. So he's sending them into the world um, and he's sanctifying him, them himself 
by sanctifying himself, setting himself completely apart so that they can be absolutely sanctified. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Earlier, he only prayed for the 11, for believers. He didn't pray for the world. Now the, the whole scope of the prayer expands. And now in starting in verse 20, he says, I'm not just praying for these 11 guys. I'm praying for all those who will believe in me through their message. And that's you, whether you know it or not. You, be, you believe because someone shared the gospel with you who someone else had shared the gospel with, and it goes back in time all the way through back to the apostles. Also, we, you may have come to faith in Christ through a verse in 1 Peter, which is written by one of the guys sitting there listening to him say this, or in one of the books written by John or Matthew, one of the guys sitting there with him. So all of us, um, he's praying for now. It's a wonderful thing. He's praying for all who will believe through their message. And may I say, that's not the end of the equation, because there's someone out there that you know that's not a believer that will believe someday, possibly, by you sharing the gospel in the same way. And it goes on from there. He'll, that person, he or she will witness to someone they know, et cetera, et cetera. It's a beautiful thing. So we're going to, we believe through their message. The apostles, Ephesians 2.20 says the whole gospel is built on the teaching of the apostles and of Jesus Christ. The apostles wrote the New Testament for the most part. So that's the other meaning there. Um, so we're going to believe through their message, verse 21, that oh, here comes his prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So his prayer is that, first of all, for unity, that they may be one in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. Christians can disagree about non-essential things, and but need to be absolutely unified and not have infighting or disagreements within believers. We are to be unified in our faith and that's what unifies us is our faith. Um, that's what we have in common more than anything else. Just as, just as you are in me, Jesus says, the Father's in him, and I am in you. There's a mutual abiding there. Look at the second half of verse 21. May they, all believers, also be in us. That's not a visitation thing where we visit God on Sunday. It's an idea of abiding, living every moment of our lives in Christ. The fact that we believe and we're in constant communication with him and prayer with him influences every thought, every decision, every action, every word that they also may be in us so that here's the result that he seeks so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Earlier, he says in this gospel that all men may believe in him. Um, because they see the unification, the love that believers have. There's an old song we used to sing in Catholic church. They will know we are Christians by our love, especially for one for one for another, but also for the whole world as well. Okay. So that's the point that they, that others may believe that Christ sent was sent by the father. Look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are 
one. Now, the idea there is that he's given them the radiance of his being. Three of them saw it more than the others on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that, Peter, James, and John. Um, but he has given them glory in that he they have seen the miracles. They have seen his perfect character. Um, they are given the glory. Now we will be given much more glory in heaven when we're out of these sinful bodies, we can still sin, but he says that he's given them that glory for the purpose of making them one. Amazingly, after the cross, they were very much united and then spread out as persecution occurred, which ended up being a blessing because it forced them to go into other parts of the world, north, south, east, and east and west. So, um, yeah, that's what 22 is all about, shared glory of believers. It is not an innate glory. What do you mean by that, Joe? Here's what I mean. An innate glory would be one that I have in myself or that I earned or that I deserve or that I have mustered on with my own effort. It is a shared glory or a reflected glory, much as the sun radiates light, S-U-N, in the sky. And the moon does nothing but reflect that light right? The moon has no light of itself. If the sun ever went out, that you would not never, you would never see the moon because there'd be no reflected light. In the same way, we are to be like the moon, reflect the sun, except this time it's S-O-N. So that's that glory that we have to reflect to others and shine his light horizontally uh, outward, if you will. Um, verse 23, and then he talks more about the uh, the whole unity thing. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete or full unity. Because of who we believe in, we can have that complete unity. Well, you say some people believe different doctrines that are Christians, not in the essentials. We're absolutely unified in those. Here's the thing. The ultimate source of our unity is the fact that we have the same Holy Spirit. You may say, not at the Presbyterian Church or not at the Assembly of God Church. Listen, if they're believers, it's the same Holy Spirit. Whether they speak Chinese or whatever language they speak, if they're believers, it's the same Holy Spirit in them. So there ought to be that absolute unity for believers. Um, let's see that they may be brought to complete unity. Look at the rest of verse 33. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So there's that mutual love that we receive. That's the same love Jesus got from the Father. That's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? And so um, that glory, um, turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to just see something for a second. So from John, take a right about four books to the right and go to 2 Corinthians 4. We're only going to be here a second. So if you're a lazy page turner, you don't have to go there, but you can listen anyway. 2 Corinthians, about four books to the right, chapter 4, and we want verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For here comes the reflected glory. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. 
sorry, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Notice this, in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty amazing thing. In the face of Jesus Christ, there's the glory that we are reflecting out. Let's keep rolling. Go back to uh, John 17 with me if you turned pages before that. Um, by the way, you can't, I can't resist saying that the ultimate glory that Jesus had was because of his absolutely humble service and self-sacrifice, and then the ultimate self-sacrifice being what he did on the cross for you and I. So um, let's go back to the text. Uh, let's see, verse 24. Yeah, Father, he's still praying to his Father. And I can imagine the disciples just watching, going, wow, this is incredible to finally hear him pray for this long of a time. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now, there's a lot of little doctrinal things here. Let's take them apart, shall we? First, he says, um, to God. He always calls him father, except when he's on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's because the sin of the world and the guilt of the world is on him and he can't, God can't look at sin. So he says, father, I want those you've given me, stop right there. Who's that? That's the 11, right? And it's all believers. He says that earlier in this chapter, that they, people were his the fathers, and the father gave them to him. He chose you in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. Do I fully understand this? No, but I believe it. He chose us. It's an astounding thing. So when you love someone, you want to be where they are. You don't say, oh, I just love that person, um, and I'm in love with them, and they live in New York, and I live in California. You would move to New York or they would move to California, right? You want to be where the people you love are. Father, I want those you've given me, that's all believers, to be with me where I am. Now, he doesn't mean where he is right that second as he's teaching them. He means ultimately with him in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the second coming is mostly about. I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. It's a natural thing, right? And to see my glory. And you might read that and say, well, I, I think I've seen his glory. I've read the Bible. I know what a glorious creature he is. I don't know if we, have, we fully understand how glorious he is to be with in his unveiled glory. Remember, his glory is veiled in a human body that's frail and able to get sick or be injured or tired or whatever. He has ultimate glory now. In John, in, sorry, in Revelation 1, when John the apostle, who knew him better than anybody, when he sees the risen Christ, he, you can read the description in Revelation 1 when we're done. He's so bowled over, he just falls down. He can't believe how awesome Christ is in his absolutely unveiled glory. They saw a taste of it on the Mount of Transfiguration where he showed them uh, his absolute radiance and glory. Um, let's see. Verse, we're still in 24. I want them to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. There's another claim to be God and to be preexistent. He existed, Jesus did, with the Father in heaven before the world began. In the beginning was the word. Already he was there. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, so back to verse 25, uh, 24. So he wants them with him. We'll see his glory. The glory he God has given to him. And, and because God loved him. Now, here's an interesting thing. Now grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want you to see something of the glory, at least verbally, and be able to picture it. Revelation, last book of the Bible, go to chapter 21. And we want verses, uh, this is, by the way, chapter 21, the whole chapter. I call it a travel brochure for heaven, where we get a glimpse of how awesome the new heavens and the new earth are. That's how chapter 21 begins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, verse two coming down. Okay, we're going to skip all that because we'd be here for three weeks. Let's go to verse 22 and 23. I want you to see the radiance of Christ and God in this heaven that we're going to live in. I, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus, are its temple. Why do we need a temple when they're dwelling with us, the Father and the Son, always? Verse 23, this is so cool. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So there's a world in which you look up in the sky and there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no need for that because God himself and Jesus Christ, the lamb dwelling with us, they provide light all day long. There's no night in heaven. You don't need to sleep in heaven. No disease, sickness, injury, death, mourning, crying, or pain. The old things have passed away. I just love that verse 23. City doesn't need the sun or the moon. The glory of God gives its light, gives it light, sorry, and the lamb is its lamp. What an awesome thing. Okay. Are you staying awake? Wave if you're still awake. Say amen. Okay, beautiful. <laughs> I see Mrs. Claus there and a bunch of you others too. Okay. Um, let's see. We already did that. Uh, we talked about the transfiguration. Okay. So um, let's keep rolling. Back to the text. Um, so verse 25, he says, righteous father, and that goes without saying that the father is absolutely perfect, sinless, righteous, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you. No one can say that to the extent Jesus could. I know you, God, the father, he was with him. He had a long time to get to, or no time, right? A billion trillion years to get to know him. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. So he doesn't mean the whole world. The context is he's praying for those, verse 20, who will believe we know that Christ was sent by the Father. Notice that phrase, the world does not know you. Now, people have, at least in each human being, an idea that there is a God. I, I believe that that's built into human beings. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, that there's a 
Blaise Pascal, the famous Christian philosopher and uh, mathematician guy, said that in each human being, there's a God-shaped vacuum or hole. We know that something's missing and people try to put money in there or power or fame or sex or drugs or something to fill up the emptiness and nothing fills it, not even a little bit. And then Jesus Christ comes into your heart and you receive him as Lord and Savior. And that that vacuum, that hole in a person's soul is filled completely. The point is the world doesn't know God. The only begotten son, John 1.18, he has manifested him or revealed him or shown him to the world. If you want to know God, you have to study the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true that a person can walk into a forest who's an atheist and say, boy, I can see somebody created all this. It's beautiful. But to say, now I think I know God is far from the truth. You can get a sense that there's a creator. He's obviously very kind to give us a planet like this with breathable air and food and water and all the other things we need on this planet. But to know him and what he wants, his will, you have to study the word and study Jesus Christ. The world doesn't know you. I know you. And they know that you have sent me, that he came from the Father. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, I have made you known to them. And they will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself, I myself may be in them. So in verse 26, he tells the father, I, Jesus, he's saying to the father, I've made you, God, known to them. Everything Jesus says or does or thinks is reflective of the father. That's how we know God. Um, earlier in this chapter, he said, and this is eternal life to know God. Remember that uh, around a verse, I think it was before verse 11, but anyway, um, let's see the world doesn't know them. I, I know you know you, I know you, I've made you known to them and they'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And I myself may be in them, that mutual abiding again. So Jesus makes the Father known. We reveal Jesus to people who in turn makes God known to them. Grab your Bible, uh, grab your uh, Gospel of John again, and go back to chapter one of the Gospel of John. We mentioned it earlier, but I just want to show you one more time. Go to John chapter one, and we'll look at three verses that all tie together. Verse one, I, I quoted earlier. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now skip down to verse 14. So who is this word, John? Verse 14. The word, the logos, the reason for everything. It was a Greek term. The word became flesh. So now we find out this mysterious word figure is a person. It's Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally in the Greek, it reads, he tabernacled with us. He dwelled with us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. He's saying Jesus' glory is the same as God's, the Father's glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now skip down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, not in his totality of all his being. 
But I'm still in verse 18 of chapter one of John. God, the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known. He's saying Jesus Christ, God, the one and only son has made him known, has revealed God, the father. Pretty amazing thing. Okay, let's keep rolling. Um, so that's the end of chapter 17. Um, by believing, people learn and know God personally through prayer, through obedience, through his word, all of the above. And it's a growing thing. You grow to know him and love him more and more. And one thing feeds uh, obedience, and that's how much he, you see how much he loves you. It makes you want to please him and obey him. Okay, so we're going to get into chapter 18 now, which is the beginning of the passion of Jesus Christ. You remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson? That is usually uh, the passion when people say that, what they mean is, you know, when he, when he died on the cross, when he was whipped and beaten, that's all part of it. But it starts even with the trials, and there are seven, we'll talk about them, seven trials. But even before that, the passion of Christ actually be begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, even before he's arrested. It includes all of the things I mentioned. It includes his death on the cross and suffering on the cross. It includes his rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. That's what we're going to see here as it begins. In John's version, all four Gospels talk about this. Gethsemane and the whole passion thing. In John's version, the Romans figure um, more than they do in the other gospels. Um, John presents Jesus again and again and again. You'll see his theme is that Jesus is totally in control. He is not a hapless victim getting bound and whipped and beaten and killed, and he wishes he could do something, he's totally in control. In fact, John's version of this story is different than the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, John excludes the whole Gethsemane, uh, sweating drops of blood, the prayer, not my will, but thy will be done. All of that is excluded because John writes much later, and probably it's excluded because uh, John knows that it's in the other three Gospels, but John wants you to know some things he remembers as an eyewitness that the others don't mention. You'll also see emphasis on Jesus as God's divine son, even in the suffering uh, in John's version of all this. He includes a lot of things they left out, as I already mentioned. He also wants you to know it happens again and again. You'll, again, and again, you'll see that it's a voluntary suffering that Jesus does. He suffers voluntarily for you and I. Also that it's the divine plan, that there's great majesty in his suffering. Man's going to do his worst against the son of God. They're going to whip him and kill him, even though he's innocent. And in that act, God will use that and do his very best. It's kind of an amazing thing. Okay, let's dive in. Chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, that's the whole chapter seven is a prayer, a 17 is a prayer. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So they've left the upper room. They were on the way there past the, toward the temple. They could see it from a distance. So they leave and they cross the Kidron Valley. We'll come back and talk about that. On the other side, there was a garden and he, his disciple, he and his disciples went into it. Okay, so this is, um, if you know Jerusalem, 
the Kidron Valley forms the eastern boundary of Jerusalem. Um, and the Kidron Valley at the bottom of it is what's called a wadi, W-A-D-I. What that is, is a stream bed, like a little brook bed, not a big river. It's a brook bed. It's dry most of the year. If there's a lot of rain, there's a little water in there. Now, this is a strange thing, but I confirmed it in several places. This stream bed that forms the bottom of the Kidron Valley at this time is flowing, not with water. It's flowing, believe it or not, with blood. And so they're going to step over this little creek bed that's flowing with blood. You say, what happened? Was there a war? No. But this is the Passover season. And from today, which is this day is Thursday to Friday, both days, they are the priests are slaying lambs as sacrifices to the degree that there are so many, one per family. Um, 30 years after this happened, the, the historian, Jewish guy, Josephus, who wrote for the Romans, wrote that one year, about 30 years after this, they did like a census, not of the people, but they counted how many lambs were slain. Okay. Remember one for per family. If it's a husband and wife, then it would be for two people. If it's a husband and wife with a bunch of kids, for all of them, a lamb was slain. The total lambs that were slain that year, 30 years later. So this will give you an idea of how many lambs and how much blood was 256,000, a quarter of a million lambs were slain. So the blood would run from there um, and go down this little brook. So it's a kind of a weird foreshadowing or a reminder for Jesus of I'm going to, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is Christ is about to die for the sins of the world. And his blood is going to be shed, which will be the last time anybody needs to sacrifice a lamb. I know that the Jews sacrificed lambs after this for that reason for the reason that they didn't understand Jesus was the ultimate lamb of god the ultimate sacrifice so they step over this little creek bed called it's called a wadi w a d i uh they cross over um and so to the east of that is the mount of olives and the garden of gethsemane that's where they're headed um there's a weird couple of parallels here the first one is King David, Old Testament. You remember King David? Okay. David, like Jesus, crossed over the Kidron Valley, rejected by his nation. Christ is about to be rejected by his nation. David was, uh, had just been betrayed by somebody very close to him. Ditto for Jesus, Judas. In both stories, a hanging follows. Kind of an amazing thing. Okay, now there's another parallel. We're not going to read the whole story, but most of you know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes in there with his disciples. It's the middle of the night. They're very tired. Um, he tells them, I'm distressed to the point of death. Um, please pray with me. He goes a short distance from them away and prays. 
and they're, they all fall asleep. Do you remember? Three times he says, couldn't you stay awake? And he's praying. What he's praying to the father is he's seeing the agony of dying for the sins of the world. And I don't mean just the physical agony. I mean the spiritual agony of having been rejected by God on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that's going to be the hardest thing. So he prays to the father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. This is not in the gospel of John. That's why I'm mentioning it here because it's part of the story. And then Jesus prays, but not my will, thy will be done. Awesome prayer. That is a, a succinct prayer you and I can pray about anything. I'm thinking about taking this job. I'm thinking about marrying this woman or moving or buying a television. Not my will, but thy will. What's your will in this, God? So Jesus prays this in the garden and sweats, as it were, drops of blood. And this is an actual physical condition under extreme stress and duress without having been hit or beaten or in any way. It's possible that out of the capillaries can burst and out of the sweat glands can come blood. So Jesus begins the passion before he's arrested in that story I just told you. Now I want you to see a connection with that Gethsemane um, stress uh, and temptation Jesus went through and tie it into Genesis 3. What temptation are you talking about, Joe? I believe that the man, Jesus Christ, was praying to God, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, the cup means that cup of God's wrath, the absolute suffering he's going to have to go through to save people from their sins. He's praying, he's tempted to opt out. If there's any way we can avoid this cup of wrath, the cross, but then he says, but not, your, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is in a garden called Gethsemane. He is tempted about obeying God for, from a command that God has given to either obey God or deny God, or, you know, disobey God, based on a commandment God gave regarding a tree. You say, what tree is that? First Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 24, Acts 10, 39, and 13, 29. Three times in the New Testament, literally in the Greek, if you can read King James and some of the other translations, it says that Jesus bore our sins on the tree. Because what is a cross made out of but a tree, right? So Jesus faces a temptation in a garden about obeying God regarding a tree. Centuries, millennia before this, Adam, the federal head, the first person on planet Earth, the man who is, in a sense, responsible for the fact that we have decay and death and sickness and crime and what have you. Adam was tempted in another garden called Eden. Do you remember the story? In that story, God gives a command about a tree. Do you remember? You can eat from any tree you want, God tells him, but you will, shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
God doesn't give Adam and Eve 10 commandments, not even four or two. He gives them one. It's an astounding thing. They can do pretty much anything they want. Don't eat of that tree. Guess what? Satan comes along, tempts Adam and Eve, and they eat. Adam flunks his test in the garden, completely fails. That's the reason there's death and all the other bad things I mentioned a second earlier. Adam fails his test. Several times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the second Adam. Jesus faces a similar test in a garden regarding a tree and obeying or disobeying God. Jesus passes his test. All Adam would have had to have said is to Satan, look, I know you're tempting me to eat that fruit of that tree. God's will be done. God told me not to do it. I'm not doing it. But he didn't do it. Adam is a picture of you and me whenever we disobey God. Don't be too hard on Adam. If it was Joe and Eve, I think Joe would have failed. And if it was, insert your name here as one of the two in the garden, I think you would have failed too. Didn't have the Holy Spirit. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, he's called that, Romans 5, passes the test. And the curse that comes from Adam's disobedience is reversed in Jesus's obedience in the garden. Let me say that again. The curse that Adam causes by disobeying God, which is death, sickness, sin, all of that, division, all of that is reversed by Jesus Christ in a garden because he obeys God regarding hanging on a tree to reverse that curse. That's the reason we get to heaven, because Jesus did what Adam did not. In a sense, heaven is Eden restored, the Garden of Eden restored with one difference. There is no Satan there to tempt you or me or Jesus or anyone else forever. He's dealt with at that time. So just kind of an interesting uh, parallel. Um, let's see, we've got a few minutes. Keep your finger here. Go to Genesis 3 with me just for a quick second. This is kind of a fun one. Genesis chapter 3. There's a verse in Genesis 3 that's called the Proto-Evangel or Evangel. Proto means first. Evangel means evangelism, spreading the gospel. And believe it or not, the first place the gospel is said to appear and it actually appears twice, is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. They hide from God. You remember? We won't read the whole story. They hide from each other by wearing fig leaves. Before they were naked and unashamed, all of a sudden they have to cover up. God shows up. What have you done? The woman passes the buck in verse 13. The serpent deceived me, so I ate. But before that, the man, Adam, he passes the buck in verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate. Everybody's passing the buck. So God starts to hand out punishment, results of their actions in verse 14. So he says some things to the serpent, which is the devil, which is Satan. But I want to skip down to verse 15. That is the proto-evangel in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, predicting in a somewhat veiled way the coming of Messiah. I will put enmity, God says, between you, he's talking to Satan, and the woman. 
between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and hers. Well, who are the woman's offspring? All of humanity, right? He, but specifically it's seed there. Verse uh, 15, I'll put enmity, enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed or offspring and hers. Now, if you know anything about biology, the seed comes from the man, not the woman. The woman provides the egg, the man provides the seed. So a woman can't have an offspring that's a seed unless there's a virgin birth. And there was. So he's speaking specifically about one particular woman, Mary, and her offspring, her seed. So there's going to be enmity between the two seeds, all that are Satan's in the world and Christ and all that are his. Now keep reading. He will crush your head. Who will? The seed of the woman, which is Jesus, the one born of a virgin. He will crush your head. He's talking about Satan. How does he do that? In a two step process. Number one, on the cross, by dying for the sins of the world, Jesus crushes Satan's head because his big weapon is sin and death. If Jesus conquers both of those, we are protected from Satan ever taking our lives or sending us to hell. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Two different injuries. Would you rather have someone crush your head or bruise your heel? Bruise your heel refers to the cross where the heels would be bruised up against the wood and rubbing up and down and what have you. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in at no extra charge. It's time to take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off for two minutes. Don't go away. This allows you to stretch your aging body. I'll see you in two minutes. Don't go away. We are. There we go. We're back. Find your seats, if you will. And um, by the way, welcome to the friends in Vanuatu. Those of you that don't know that it is tomorrow over there and they're watching in the morning. Nice to have you guys there. And Sherry and my friend Claire is there with them. Uh, Vanuatu is um, way on the other side of the earth, kind of near. Um, I'm probably going to get this wrong, you guys, but kind of near Australia, kind of over that way, Fiji and what have you. Anyway, welcome, you guys. And it's morning there. We're happy to have you. Okay, we're back in the Gospel of John chapter 18. So I wanted to give you that connection. Now let's go to verse two and start to get the narrative of the arrest. John chapter 18, verse two. So they go into the garden and here it comes. Now, Judas who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. If Jesus is trying to avoid arrest or to hide, this is the exact wrong place to go. Why does Jesus go here? Because he wants to get arrested. He wants to die on the cross. You're seeing the purpose here that Jesus is resolute that he's, this is going to happen. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 37, Luke tells us that they, the disciples, stayed there, slept there in the Garden of Gethsemane every um, Passover. All week long, they stayed there. So if you're Judas, you kind of get kicked out of the Last Supper, remember? One of you is going to betray me. Is it I, Lord? Yes, it is. What you do, do quickly, get lost kind of thing. Judas leaves. The disciples get an amazing 
teaching chapters 13 to 17. Now they've gone across that brook and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're Judas, you went to the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, got them all together and said, this is the night. Let's go get them. If you're Judas, the top two places you would go is back to the upper room. And they may have gone there. We don't know, but they're not there. But this is the likely place, the Garden of Gethsemane, where they stayed. This is probably a privately owned garden, and the owner lets them stay there. Maybe he's a believer. We don't know. But Judas knew the place, and that's why Jesus picked it, because he wants this to happen. He's on a time schedule. He's got to die on Passover, because he's the ultimate lamb of God. So um, let's see, verse three. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a whole group of people, a detachment of soldiers, or um, a cohort is actually what it is. Now, a cohort, a Roman cohort was 600 soldiers, but there was another way that it was used, the word, where it would mean around two hundred soldiers. Either way, this is a big group of guys to come and arrest one Jewish carpenter who's been unarmed his whole life. So the Roman cohort is at least 200, could be as many as 600 soldiers. I want you to get the picture. In the other gospel, we find out that they show up with torches and with clubs, weapons. Um, and Jesus even calls them on that and says, have you come to arrest me like a common robber or criminal? I taught in the temple plainly. You never arrested me there. He's sort of sticking it in and turning at the knife to say, why didn't you arrest me with all those crowds? Because you're afraid of the people kind of thing. They can get them at night quietly. Um, so there in Jerusalem, right next to the temple was the fortress. It was called the Fortress of Antonia, which during the feasts, they would stock that place with hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers because that many Jews coming into Jerusalem, in case there's trouble, we need a big army there. So they've got the personnel with Judas are, is this Roman group of soldiers and a commander of some kind. And the rest of verse three says, and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, that would be the temple police. They were allowed to have their own police. So you see in the arrest of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, both being responsible um, for the arrest of Jesus uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, lanterns and weapons. I find it ironic that they're carrying torches torches and lanterns. Why is that ironic? Because Passover is a full moon. So you, you could see out, out at night. You ever go out on a full moon? You can see pretty well. Why are they carrying these lights? Because they think he's going to hide. And he, here he is in plain sight. In fact, he's going to take control and approach them in a second. But they're carrying weapons uh, as well as he says. They expect maybe a conflict. Who knows? We know that the disciples have from the uh, one of the synoptic gospels, I think it's Luke, that they ask about carrying swords. And Jesus says, how many do you have? And they say two. And he says, that's enough. Peter's got one. We don't know how, who has the other one. That'll uh, figure in in a second. So um, here they come, Judas and this huge group uh, versus 12 guys, Jesus and the 11 apostles. Uh, 
Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Do you see he's in total control? He's not shocked. Oh, no, I'm going to get arrested. It's all happening exactly according to God's plan. <clears throat> knowing all that was going to happen to him, Jesus went out. He approaches them and asks them, who is it you want? He makes them say it, okay? And they say, so he wants to know who, who, who is it that you want? He knows it's a formality, but he wants them to say it. Verse four, verse five, sorry. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now that's the man's name. That's the place he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but they raised him in Nazareth, a very small kind of um, place that was very much put down uh, in a poor area, very small town. Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what they replied, verse five. Now, NIV here has, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. In the Greek, there's no word he, it's ego, a me, which means I am. The he is implied, but he chooses these words carefully because if you know your Old Testament and you know John 8, 58 and a lot of other places, it's the divine name of God. Moses encounters the burning bush in the Old Testament. Do you remember Exodus 3? And God speaks to him and, Moses, and tells Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt, a bunch of other things. And Moses basically says, I'm not your guy. Pick somebody else. And God says, I'm paraphrasing, but don't tell me what to do. And so Moses eventually says, okay, I'll do it. But who, wait a minute. Who do I tell people sent me? What's your name, God? Who are you? And God says to Moses, this is Old Testament, thousands of years before this, before, well, more than a thousand years, before, uh, no, he says, I am that I am. That's my name. You shall tell the Jews, I am sent you. Ego, me in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, same two words. It's a claim to deity. So when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, that's the man's name. Jesus says, I am, which is God's name. Well, which is correct? Both. He's the man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's fully God. He says, ego, me. I am, I am, I'm God. When Jesus, verse six, uh, I'm smiling, I'll tell you why in a second. When Jesus said, I am they all drew back and fell to the ground. Who's they? Everybody. The soldiers, the Pharisees that are there, Judas, the temple police, some other people accompanying them, slaves. It's a crowd of at least 220, 250 people. Could be six or 700 people there. They say, he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And the whole crowd, I've got to check out this DVD when I get to heaven and watch this. The whole crowd <clears throat> falls over backward, all of them, from the power of him saying it. Is this a miracle? Absolutely. And you can say whatever you want to a, a big crowd of soldiers, and they're not going to fall over backwards. It's an amazing and kind of ironic display of power. Why? Okay. I asked myself this week, why, why does this happen? 
I think it's a way of showing them and the disciples and the Pharisees, Jesus showing them. Jesus is in essence saying, I have unlimited power. Not only can I knock these guys over with two words, but I could annihilate them. I could destroy them all. I could call fire down from heaven and destroy them. I'm just showing you, I'm going willingly to the cross. You think you're overpowering me when you arrest me? I'm going to overpower you first, just to show you who really is in control here. So um, when our kids were little, my son took martial arts, took taekwondo, and uh, and then later Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But anyway, when he took taekwondo, he got into martial arts for a little while. And when we read this passage of scripture, I told my kids that this was the greatest single act of martial arts ever in the whole Bible. A man speaks two words and knocks a bunch of people over. I just, I just love it for a number of reasons. So I can't help but wonder, what did the soldiers think? What did the Pharisees think? They have to get up and dust themselves off and go, what was that, right? I'd love to interview them and find out. But it shows he has total control over them. Um, interesting. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. This is a, a trippy little tie-in thing. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 says, he's talking about the end times and the Antichrist. And then he says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That easily, just like he did this as well. Here's another interesting verse. Isaiah 11.4 speaks of the Messiah and says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So this is an interesting thing. This is a display of his deity and his power to show them, I'm going with you, but you're you're not really in control. What's interesting, as you study the life of Jesus, you see two concurrent things, two themes that keep happening and weirdly side by side. And they're very different. One theme is the total humility of Jesus and his whole life. And the other theme is the absolute total power and deity, the fact that he is God. And it's both. And they happen side by side. Let me show you. For example, Jesus is born as a little helpless baby to a poor family where there's no room at the inn, and they've got to go to some sort of a stable or cave or something. And he's laid in a little manger, which sounds like a way in a manger. How nice. A manger is a feed trough for animals. That's what it is. He's laid in a manger. That's so humble, Joe. Yes, it is. But right with that incident, that birth is announced by angels. That's a pretty, that's deity, right? A few years later, when he's a toddler, not when he's a baby, like you've seen, the wise men come looking for him, guided by a star. That happens not when he's a baby, when he's a toddler, but we won't talk about that now. Okay, so he's born as a baby, and yet he's announced by angels. He submits to baptism, which is a very humble thing where you're taken under the water. It's for sinners. He's not a sinner. John the Baptist baptizes him. Do you remember? Very humble. 
And yet at that moment, God, the father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the dove descends, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the humility and the deity. There's a lot of these. I won't give you all of them. In his humanity, Lazarus is dead and Jesus weeps at the grave. Do you remember that? Total humility. And yet a second later, he says, take the stone away. And he yells, Lazarus, come forth and raises the dead from the humility to the deity. Jesus is so tired in a day of ministry that the disciples get on a boat and in the midst of an unbelievable storm that scares seasoned fishermen, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat he, with his head on a cushion. He's so tired. And yet, when the disciples freak out and wake him up and say, don't you care that we're drowning? He gets up from the humility of being so tired, he's asleep. He gets up and calms the storm and says, Shh, and the whole storm calms and the waves stop. He calls to Peter and Peter walks on the water another time. Remember that? Um, let's see. He surrenders to arrest here and yet knocks them all over. I just love it. He dies on a cross. You can't get more humble than that. But at the same time, there's supernatural darkness in the middle of the day and an earthquake and the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom the humility and the Godhood of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. When you pray to him, you are praying to that being who is both God and man, but it's the Godhood that can answer the prayer. Amen. Okay. One other weird thing about this before we move on, I know I'm spending a lot of time on verse five. So he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, and he says, I am, and they all fall backwards. Okay. Um, in the Bible, if you do a word study on falling backwards in the Old Testament and here, it's the enemies of God who fall backwards. You say, well, other people fall at Jesus's feet. Yes. The followers of God, the lovers of God, the worshipers of God fall forwards. Proskuneo is to bow forward face in the dirt kind of thing, kneeling, proskuneo, bowed down this way. Falling back are God's enemies uh, in the Old Testament. Eli falls backwards in 1 Samuel 4. Um, in Isaiah 28, God's word is spoken as judgment, quote, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken. Kind of a cool little sideline. Um, but in Joshua 5, Isaiah 28, uh, sorry, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 43, 44, they fall forward. The believers fall forward. Same with Revelation 1, when John sees the risen Christ. Um, let's see, Ezekiel 1 and 2, there's falling forward in worship too. Daniel 10, he falls to the ground. Daniel does forward in worship. Okay, enough on that. You say, keep moving, Joe. Okay, I will. Let's go back to the text. Are you still awake? Wave, say amen. There you go. Beautiful. Okay. Verse seven. So they have to, between verse six and verse seven, they got to get up, all of them, dust themselves off, shake their heads and go, what just happened? I don't know. Verse seven. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? John wants to see, wants you to see he's the one in control, 
not the army. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Now, I love that verse seven, because they said Jesus of Nazareth last time, and he said, ego me, I am, and they all fell backwards. This time, I think they said Jesus of Nazareth, and they kind of held on to something or had a firm stance so they wouldn't fall backwards. Jesus answered verse eight, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Now that is a command. He's saying, not only am I in control and I proved it by knocking you over, but I'm the only one you're taking here. You're not going to arrest these 11 guys. Let them go. Totally in control. Verse nine, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. That was a couple chapters ago in the gospel of John. It's in John 17, one chapter ago. I haven't lost any. John 6, 39 says, all that the father gives me will, 37, will come to me. And of those, I will lose none. So it's fulfillment of scripture. Verse 10. Now, remember, Simon Peter was told a couple chapters ago, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, I'll never deny you. Remember? So Peter, chapter uh, 18, verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, this incident is in the other Gospels, but nobody mentions Peter or Malchus. They're both dead by now. John is a very old man when he's writing this Gospel right around 90 AD or so. So he gives you the details because he was an eyewitness. Not only that it was Peter, which if we know Peter and we do, doesn't surprise us, right? Um, Chuck Missile used to say that Peter, instead of ready, aim, fire, Peter was ready, fire, aim. Always puts his foot in his mouth one way or the other, at least at this point. So Peter's got a sword. He's trying to protect his Lord, his friend. You got to give him credit for that. I think he's trying to show off and say, see, I won't deny you, but it's God's will. It's Christ's will that this arrest happen. Don't mess it up. Peter takes a swipe at the high priest's servant, whose name is Malchus. Servant would be like a slave. So the high priest may have been there as well and cuts off his right ear. That's detail we don't get from the other gospels. Um, He cuts off his right ear. He's probably trying to help Jesus as if stabbing somebody, let's say he killed Malchus, God forbid, with all the other guys that are there, soldiers with clubs, is that really going to make a difference? He's not really thinking clearly, is he? Um, So if this is allowed to stand, then Jesus gets arrested and so does Peter for attempted murder. And that's going to mess everything up because they'll probably crucify both of them, which will confuse the issue. What does Jesus do? Luke tells us um, that uh, Jesus heals Malchus's ear, the final miracle before the resurrection. Jesus, either if it's hanging or if it fell, he picks it up, puts it back on there, and without anesthesia, without stitches or surgery, 
makes the ear good as new. So the crime has gone away. Now Peter doesn't have to get arrested and crucified with him. So you got to give Peter credit, but then again, he's not acting in God's will at all. Then Jesus, verse 11, sort of gently, or maybe not so gently, rebukes Peter. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Because he might have thought, now I'll stab somebody else with it. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Old Testament, that word for cup is often used, a cup of wrath that God has against sin. God hates sin. Every bit of hatred that God has against sin is put into one giant cup, the size of a stadium, if you will, and Jesus is going to drink it when he dies on the cross. He'll receive the absolute wrath and anger of God for all sins created on planet earth. Pretty amazing thing. Um, so, um, by the way, the word for sword is Mashaira, M-A-C-H-A-I-R-A. It's a small sword. It's really like a large knife more than a, it's not a big, long sword. Uh, one that you could easily hide too. As I told you, they have two of them, Luke 22, 38. There's one of them that gets pulled out. Jesus, Luke, as the doctor who writes the gospel of Luke, mentions that Jesus restored the ear. Uh, so Jesus wants Peter to know that the cross is necessary in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? Shall I not do this and not save anybody? My whole life is a waste. This is my hour. This is the reason I came. Let it happen. It's all going to work out. So uh, let's see. At this point, it doesn't say it in the Gospel of John because Jesus is the focus here, not the disciples. In the other Gospels, what happens right now is exit stage left for the 11 guys. They split. They run away. He predicted they would all be scattered. The Old Testament predicted strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. At this point, this is when they uh, all run away like cowards. Peter and John stay closer than the others, but they, they also leave. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So they arrest Jesus. They bind him, right? Tie his hands, maybe behind his back. I don't know. But they arrested him and they bound him. Keep in mind, they don't have a charge yet. You know, when you get arrested, you're under arrest for the murder of so-and-so or because you robbed the bank or he's never committed sin. He's done nothing wrong. And they're arresting him. They bound him. Why is that in there? Well, he's supposed to be led as a lamb to the slaughter and lambs were bound. So the government officials and the temple police, which are the Jewish officials, both have a hand uh, in arresting him. And Jesus is thinking everything's going perfectly according to plan. Jesus is thinking that. So they bound him and they brought him first to Annas, verse 13. If you're keeping track, this is trial number one. This trial before Annas um, is not in the 
other gospels. Um, John gives this, this is a preliminary hearing, you might call it, but I'm going to get to it in a second, why the trials, all seven of them, and the arrest of Jesus, why they were, for a, a bunch of reasons, why they're illegal, according to the Jewish law. Um, but we'll come to that in a second. So they bring him first to Annas. Okay, you say, who's Annas? Caiaphas is the high priest that year. That's right. Annas was um, a Jewish guy, and he was the high priest formerly. He was high priest from AD the year 6 to the year 15. So he hasn't been high priest for at least 15 years, maybe a little more. Okay. What happened? Well, he was a crooked guy and got in trouble, and the Romans removed him from that position. Not biblical. The biblical idea of high priest is your high priest for life, supposedly. But the Romans are in control. They make him leave his post. So Annas, being a good politician, puts in one of his sons, and then another, and another, and another, and another. Five of his sons take turns being high priest, and they don't do a very good job. Eventually, one of his daughters has married this guy named Caiaphas, and he gets the job. He's Annas's son-in-law. Annas is the ex-high priest, the real power behind the throne. So the first place they bring him is to Annas's house in the palace, where it would be with Caiaphas probably living on the same property, but they bring him to Annas. It's the middle of the night when this occurs. Um, so that's the first place they bring him, Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Um, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Okay. Uh, Annas was high priest, by the way. Uh, sorry, Caiaphas was from AD 18 until 36 AD. Uh, for 18 years. Okay, so verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Okay, go in the Gospel of John, go back to chapter 11. I want you to see this again. This is an amazing thing. Chapter 11 of John, the Jewish leaders are discussing what are we going to do with this Jesus guy? Okay, and Caiaphas stands up, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. And he's kind of an arrogant guy. The first thing he says is, you're all idiots. He says, you know nothing at all, in verse 49. Verse 50, you do not realize that it is better for you, Jewish leaders. It's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, he means instead of Jesus being a revolutionary and getting us in trouble with the Romans, it's better that for the masses, if we just kill him and we save the nation. But the ironic thing is, this is a prophecy made by an unbeliever. And John is about to let us know that in the verses that follow this. The way God meant it is, it's better for you, Jews, and Gentiles, that one man die than for the whole nation to perish. It's better for the one man to die, because if the man dies and it's Christ, he's going to provide salvation for all who believe in him. Keep reading in John 11, verse 51. He did not say this on his own, 
But as high priest that year, he prophesied, was he a believer? No, I already told you he's not, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, that's you and me, to bring them together and make them one. Believers that are Jewish in Christ, believers that are Gentiles in Christ are one. Um, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life, John says there. So this is that same guy that said that weird thing. It's better that we kill this one guy and save the nation so that the nation won't perish. The weird thing is they did kill the one guy. He did provide salvation for all who believed. But these guys and all who didn't believe, they are the reason the nation did perish. <clears throat> and with it, Judaism, they haven't sacrificed a lamb since about 70 AD, a long, long, almost 2000 years ago. Okay. Um, go back to John 17 with me. Um, so Caiaphas, verse 14, he, John's reminding you who he is. And so this is um, a very brief version of that trial. The uh, other gospels, the synoptics, synoptics means P Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels, um, they have the details of that whole trial. John skips that. Okay. The Romans figure more prominently in John's gospel than the Jews do. So he just mentions that he's there and there's a trial there. Now John is going to do a, a thing that's done in movie making a lot, which is to keep switching scenes back and forth between two scenes. Scene number one, trial of Jesus. Scene number two, meanwhile, not meanwhile back at the ranch, but meanwhile, out in the courtyard, Peter. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. By the way, parenthetically, what he means is at a distance, right? They're not hanging with him there. He's a convicted or at least arrested criminal, they're hanging way back, but they're watching. You got to give them credit for that, um, but not much. Because this disciple, so there's Peter and another disciple unnamed. This is the way John refers to himself. Another disciple, or he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Peter and another disciple, we know it's John. I'll show you why in a second. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the priest's courtyard. John is the son. John and James are the son of, of Zebedee, who's a fairly wealthy um, fisherman. And somehow he's got either family or, because money, connections to the powers that be the high priest. So he can get in and he gets Peter in too, who's with him. Um, this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So now they're behind enemy lines in the courtyard at the house of the high priest. Verse 16, but Peter had to wait outside at the door, at least at first. The other disciple, that's John, who was known to the high priest, came back. I'm still in verse 16, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. I know this guy let him in. So this is a slave girl, serving girl, guarding the door. Verse 17, she says, uh, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? 
And the question is, the way it's worded in the Greek expects a negative answer, just the way NIV has it. You're not one of them too, are you? Which means, first of all, that she recognizes that John is a disciple. She's seen John with him before, with Jesus. So she asks Peter, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? Peter, if he had thought, would have thought, well, she knows John is a disciple of Jesus and she's letting him in. I might as well just tell the truth and not deny my Lord. But he doesn't. He replied, I am not. Now, Peter may have in mind that 10 or 20, 30 minutes ago, maybe half an hour, an hour ago, he tried to kill a guy with a knife protecting Jesus and cut off the guy's ear in a bloody mess and Jesus healed it. If he's found there, he might get arrested. I'm not making excuses for Peter, but that may be why he denied him. But to deny Jesus, it's weird because Peter is so brave with a sword around a bunch of guys that are in an army with weapons, and he's such a wimp around a servant girl who's unarmed. You're not one of his disciples, are you? No, 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 not me. Denial number one. Remember, Jesus predicted he would deny him three times. When you put all the, the stories of the denial together, you find out that what actually Jesus predicted is that before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me thrice or three times. We'll talk more about that next week. We're out of time for tonight, so we've got to close. Um, I'm going to close with prayer. We're going to meet one more time next Tuesday night, and we will meet in person unless there's a blizzard or something. But those of you that can make it in person, we'd love to have you there. Those of you on Zoom, we love that as well. Um, anyway, we'll meet, and then we'll take three weeks off, two weeks off, something like that for the holidays, and we'll start again in January, and I'll email you to let you know. Anyway, thank you for being here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unbelievable uh, testimony that these lessons have for us in these scriptures, God. Thank you for your spirit teaching this class um, in and through me, God. It would never happen without that. Give us that desire to be united, to be one with other believers and get along with Christians and love each other as a way of showing the world that we are yours, God. Protect us as we live behind enemy lines. May we never deny you the way Peter did here and will next week. Uh, we thank you that although Adam failed the test in the garden regarding a tree and a command from God, from you, thank you that Jesus, the second Adam, passed that test. That's the reason we're talking to you now. That's the reason our future is glorious. That's the reason we're saved. We love you, Father. We owe you everything. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. Th help us to think of someone we can invite to Christmas service when it happens. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. I hope to see you next time. God bless you. Good night.